In last week's sermon, Emily pointed out how the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel follows a patriarchal format. Surprisingly, it also includes reference to five women whose roles and life stories were integral to Jesus' life and ministry in fulfillment, in his fulfillment as God's Messiah. To a pious Jewish reader, the inclusion of most of these women would have been a source of embarrassment given their non-Jewish origin and their actions, but no more of a cause for embarrassment than the actions of their male counterparts. It is this embarrassing element in the genealogy of Jesus and how it signals something important in Matthew's presentation of the gospel that I want to address in today's sermon. But first, allow me to make a few observations about other aspects of the genealogy found in the opening of Matthew's gospel. First is to note that the structure is organized into three sections. The first section is Abraham's descendants down to King David. The second section lists is a list of kings who succeeded David up to the time of the Babylonian exile. And then finally, the third section is a post-exilic list of descendants, none of whom served as king, but whose lineage bears the hope of a future Messiah. Matthew summarizes this organizational outline in verse 17 by calling attention to its symmetry, 14 generations in each section, although only one of the three actually adds up to 14. The point of the threefold pattern is not so much a statistical calculation as it is a theological reflection on the working out of God's plan. It shows that the period of preparation is now complete and the stage is set for the time of fulfillment, the coming of the promised Messiah. Thus, the purpose of Matthew's genealogy is to show that Jesus is the goal to which Israel's lovingly remembered history pointed. Mention of the exile seems out of place in a genealogy. It would be like reading the names of relatives in your own family tree with an unexpected insertion. Great Grandpa Bob lived in Galveston, Texas. What is that doing there? In this case, the exile brought the monarchy to an end. While the descendants of Jeconiah are from David's royal family, none of them actually sat on a throne or ruled over the people of God. Nevertheless, their bloodline carries the hope of the coming Messiah who would fulfill God's promise made to David and to Abraham. For most of us, the reading of the genealogy is nothing but a calling out of unrecognized names and in some cases, difficult names to pronounce. But for Matthew and his Jewish listeners, these names represented stories and memories, some of whom were a source of embarrassment and shame. After we hear the list read, I will call attention to a few of them and relate their significance for Matthew's gospel. In the same way, our own family tree affects our sense of personal identity. First, let's listen to the reading of God's Word by John Howe.
Our reading, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of, of Abihah, Abihah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jeram, Jeram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Oz, Oz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Hosea the father of Jeconah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abhud, Abhud the father of Elakim, Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Elazar, Elazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Imagine if your family tree included someone whose name is well known for all the wrong reasons. A name like Judas, Caligula, Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Idi Amin. That is what it must have been like for Matthew's readers to hear that Jesus' ancestors included the likes of Ahaz and Manasseh, two of Judah's most notorious kings. During the reign of Ahaz from 744 to 728, the kingdoms of Israel and Syria were being threatened by the more powerful Assyrians. Therefore, they sought to form an alliance with Judah. Acting against the prophet Isaiah's counsel, Ahaz chose instead to align with Assyria. The result was Judah became a vassal or puppet state, subject to heavy taxation and religious compromise. 
Not only did Ahaz swear allegiance to their ruler, Tiglath-Pileser, but he embraced the Assyrian gods and incorporated them into Judah's worship, even in the temple. 2 Kings 16.3 says, Ahaz even offered his own son by fire to the god Moloch as a sacrificial offering. This same horrific act was repeated by his grandson Manasseh. In a sermon preached by Kent in the fall of 2019, he described Manasseh as the worst Hebrew king ever. His reign of 55 years, the longest of the Davidic monarchy, was characterized by widespread idolatry and violence against his own subjects. As Kent stated, rather than uphold the law of God, Manasseh used his power for selfish ends, crushing the poor and innocent with oppression and violence, shedding so much blood that it filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. His tyranny infected the nation as a whole such that the biblical chronicler made this observation, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In addition to these two notorious names in Jesus' genealogy, two of the most celebrated names as national leaders and, hero and heroes of the faith were Abraham and David. They are not without their own tinged reputations. Out of fear for his life during a sojourn to Egypt, we have learned that Abraham passed his wife Sarah off as his sister. And David's act of adultery with Bathsheba and her subsequent pregnancy led him to arrange for her husband Uriah's death. Note the stigmatized reference to David in the genealogy. Quote, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. As great and revered as David was, he was also a source of embarrassment and shame. Take any house, whether royal or common or peasant, someone in the family line stands out as a reminder of our human depravity. Their dishonor, shame, cowardice, theft, adultery, or murder is part of our story. Their name is connected to our own. There's a story of Alexander the Great holding court after one of his military campaigns in which soldiers who had been accused of wrongdoing were brought before him for judgment. One soldier had been accused of cowardice in the face of combat, something Alexander the Great did not tolerate. During the proceedings, he asked the soldier to state his name. With fear and trembling, the soldier answered, Alexander, sir. With increased intensity on the part of the king, the soldier was asked to repeat his answer. And then Alexander the Great finally told him, either change your conduct or change your name. I've never been, I've never devoted time to research our family tree beyond immediate ancestors. Whatever I know by way of names and history is limited to stories I heard told at family gatherings. I only knew one surviving grandparent in my childhood. On my mom's side, 
Her parents had immigrated from Palermo, Sicily before she was born here in the United States, and then they died when she was in her early teens. I hardly knew the difference of being from Italy proper versus being Sicilian, nor did I know of its association with the Italian Mafia. What I do recall about growing up in southwest Missouri was that my mom's ethnic background was incidental to my sense of identity. With a name like Flowers, the Sicilian half of my family was hardly noticeable. Unless one of my, my mom's relatives came to visit, then I would gather my friends on the back porch so that they could listen to my relatives speaking Italian and broken English through the screen door. One such visitor wasn't actually a relative, but a family friend. Lee Moriello had been married to an Italian evangelist, and she loved to tell stories. When she left after visiting us, I was never sure whether it was her relative or mine who joined the Merchant Marines in order to flee his involvement in the Mafia. There are parts of our family history we might prefer to keep secret, if not buried with the past. Some member of the family whose actions brought shame or embarrassment to our family name. Some things we just can't outlive. Lewis Smeads was Kent and my professor of ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary. He wrote a book titled Shame and Grace, Healing the Shame We Don't Deserve. In it, Smeads identifies unhealthy versions of shame and how we might confront their destructive influence in our lives. In one respect, he says shame may be healthy and serve as a spiritual prompt. It's not in the presence of God's divinity, but in God's humanity, Smeet says, that this occurs. He writes, when I grope for God's divinity, I feel shaken, but not shamed. God's presence is elusive, here but not all here. Just when I feel God is close, I realize God is wholly other. It's not a feeling of shame, but of smallness, weakness, and dependence in contrast to God's vast, vastness, God's power and mystery. But in my encounter with the humanity of God, I do feel a sense of healthy shame. The humanity of God is what we meet in Jesus, God like us, God becoming one of us. Here I am face to face with my true self and I experience a feeling of dissatisfaction with who I am compared with who I am meant to be. Smeed says, Jesus never calculates the consequences before he speaks the truth. I am self-protecting and deceitful. Jesus does what is right, even when doing it will get him nailed to a cross. I am a coward when it is risky to do the right thing. Jesus knows the will of God and nothing sidetracks him from doing it. I easily lose my way. Jesus' love is giving, generous, and unconditional and sacrificial. My love is self-serving, needy, 
and expects reciprocity. The contrast between Jesus and me shames me. But God does not leave me there. The very pain shame brings is also the onset of its healing. God's love and grace makes me feel more worthy than if I had never felt the shame in the first place. During the Protestant Reformation, a debate arose about the best model to characterize the church. One version represented the church as school for saints. This model sees the church as a training center with prospective members required to articulate their faith in order to belong. Another version represented the church as a hospital for sinners. Church members, according to this model, come to find healing for a sin-sick soul. The very thing a person might have felt a need to hide in order to fit into the school model becomes the means by which someone is able to enter the hospital model. You don't have to be healthy enough in order to be welcomed to, in the hospital. Struggles, doubts, failures, brokenness, and other less than saintly traits are no reason to be excluded. We all belong because we all have this in common. We need to be here, not because we deserve to be. In Matthew 3, Jesus comes to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Aware of his identity, John says, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replies, let it be so. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. I regarded this statement as the first instance of Jesus identifying with our humanity and need for God's saving forgiveness. Now I realize that even before Jesus was born or entered our world, in the genealogy of his ancestors, Jesus shares our identity and joins our human family in its condition. Jesus knows what we're made of, what we're capable of, what has long separated us from God. It's part of our history, our story as humans. Jesus embraces this reality and all that comes with it, and as God's Messiah, redeems it to which we say, thanks be to God. Amen.